Hello and welcome to the LGPS podcast. My name is Howard Schusler and I'm your host. I'm the Government Services Division Director for Elaine Council of Governments and Local Government Personnel Services. I'm joined today by Pierre Robert, the LGPS Principal Labor Attorney. Hi, Pierre. Hi, Howard. Today's topic is telework and in particular telework agreements. It's not just for pandemics and the zombie apocalypse. Prior to the pandemic and subsequent lockdown, agencies may have allowed alternate work schedules and telework in some cases. Many also had policies to provide some guidance about how this could work. Then in March of 2020, everything changed. Within a couple of weeks, we all had to either send people home through layoffs and furloughs, or we sent them home with the idea that they would work from home. Here at ELCOG, we needed to ensure that everyone who could work could continue to work from home, had a laptop or home computer, access to our network either through VPN or a dial-in option called LogMeIn, access to adequate broadband, and had to be connected to our phone system in some way. We had a policy and required telework agreements, but the policy and the agreements weren't really designed to operate in an environment like this. We have a division that provides services to people 65 and older with disabilities, and so the state mandated that a certain number of our employees continue to come in and provide services to the public. But even with that, about 80% of our employees began working remotely. We didn't really have systems in place for monitoring employee performance for remote work, things like measuring successful work outcomes rather than simply a count of transactions, so we weren't really prepared to adequately monitor the telework. Recently, I was talking with Lane County's operations director, and their IT had set up systems to monitor some of the work. If I understood him correctly, their experience was that initially, you know, things like the first couple of months after lockdown, employee productivity for those things that where they could measure it and were measuring remained high. However, now, after 14 or 16 months, productivity was dropping off considerably. The thing about this uh, transition to telework, or at least a thing about telework, from my perspective, has been that while individuals were comfortable with telework in varying degrees, now all evidence suggests that it's rapidly becoming preferred and perhaps even expected. We've done some internal surveying, and as I've looked uh, online from a variety of sources, this transition appears to be a common thing. Uh, What had been relatively uncommon now seems to be trending toward the preferable work arrangement. The entire concept of workplace and work time is transitioning and transforming. It's become fluid. It's no longer specifically attached to a place. And even for me, someone much closer to the end of my career than the beginning, my office has become wherever I am, whenever my phone rings. I've had several important meetings from my car when I've been on the road to somewhere else. As things begin to feel somewhat normal again, and we think about what does return to a new normal mean, telework seems to be coming up everywhere. In addition to pandemics and the zombie apocalypse, teleworking can do things like reducing absenteeism, helping to recruit talented employees, reducing emissions from cars and miles driven, and from a mission perspective, it can help with organizational resiliency. It can help us prepare to work through snowstorms, transit stoppages, bridge collapses, and other human-made and natural disaster events. At ELCOG, we sent everyone or almost everyone home after the March lockdown, and while we had a policy in place and a telework agreement to use, our focus was on enabling employees to work remotely and not strict adherence to policies that were not really designed for such mass usage or implementation. So now we're revising our telework policy with the intent to return to full compliance 
and with the thought that a lot of employees will want to continue to work at least some of the time remotely. I think that employee satisfaction and retention will depend on our ability to do this in the future. Pierre, you were involved in our policy revision and provided your insights into how this might emerge as a bargaining issue. So as a starter, are you seeing labor issues related to telework? Yes, precisely because a lot of employees uh, are attracted to telework from, you know, now that they've done it and now that they know that their employers can cope with it uh, through this pandemic, uh, they are asking unions um, here and there uh, to, to uh, ask to demand, uh, ask for representation to uh, allow it to continue uh, particularly in circumstances when where employers are asking employees to return to work. Yeah, and have you been monitoring the herb or any listservs to get a sense of what's trending? I have not seen anything uh, on the herb uh, uh, at, at the herb. No cases pending at the herb that I can tell that that issue is pending right now. Historically, I I did an extensive search for cases. Um, that might tell me whether or not the herb has ever ruled whether the assignment by an employer to an employee of work location is permissive or mandatory for bargaining. I found none. There's a reason for that. Having found none, I think I know why there aren't any on that specific point. But um, the answer generally is yes. This will be an emerging, emerging labor issue in the coming years. Uh, do you have any special considerations for or things you might advise with non-exempt employees, you know, those who are eligible for overtime? The first thing that comes to mind is the necessity of monitoring employees' hours of work. Obviously, uh, and as our listeners may know, an employer who merely permits, uh, without asking an employee, but permits an employee to work overtime is responsible and liable legally to pay the employee overtime wages, uh, even if even if an employee worked overtime without getting pre-approval, uh, you, you, uh, an employer is going to be liable to pay for it. So, monitoring hours of work obviously becomes much more challenging uh, for employees uh, working remotely. So for employers who are telling their employees to start coming back to the regular workplace, do unions have the right to demand to bargain this? Historically, I would say pre-pandemic, the answer was no. I think pre-pandemic, before the pandemic caused everybody, caused this really um, tectonic shift in um, in, in our experience of telework, and of the, um, um, uh, the, 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 the shift in our awareness of, of what's possible and that, and that it is possible to telework for many employees. Uh, the answer was it was a permissive subject of bargaining. It was inherent in the management right to assign duties of work. The work location was so inherent and is still today in, so inherent in the uh, management function and right to assign duties of work that I don't believe the herb was ever, I surmise, the herb was never asked by a union uh, whether or not assignment of an employee to work location was mandatory for bargaining. I, I fully expect 
that the uh, that a union somewhere in Oregon is going to bring the question back to the herb uh, now that that the context has that the pandemic has created a new context for the question. And I expect, frankly, I could be wrong, but it wouldn't surprise me if the ERB handed out a decision that said, for for purposes of bargaining, you know, telework, especially if the consideration. Um, it, considering that the, the safety considerations of the of the uh, uh, that you have to give to the fact of COVID nineteen um, uh, are gonna are probably gonna make that a mandatory issue for bargaining. Previously, safety was only uh, a, a mandatory issue uh, for um, uh, largely for law enforcement, and uh, yeah. So, so. It, it's bargainable as long as the virus conditions or the pandemic conditions exist to some degree. I'm convinced that that the, that the herb will rule that as long as uh, people have legitimate concerns about um, catching um, uh, the virus in a workplace, uh, that virus in a workplace, that the, it, the herb has good reason to rule that way. Unions will have a good argument to make before them. According to TechRepublic.com, something over 60% of all organizations have some staff working remotely, yet most don't have specific telework policies. In preparing for this podcast, I looked at a variety of sources to see what best practices may be out there, who is already thinking about and working on telework policies, and generally, who may have some sound advice for us. In terms of policy best practices, I looked at some model policy language from SHRM, that's the Society for Human Resource Management, TechRepublic.com, which is an online advisor to tech companies, and a number of policies developed by agencies in Oregon. Uh, I found common themes, which I'm going to take as kind of the wisdom or consensus of the, the group or the professionals. Uh, these policies had sections that addressed eligibility, which is what positions could work remotely, if someone's job is to take cash payments for water bills, then probably not really a good fit. And it is certainly not a good fit for police, fire, or road maintenance. Uh, a second issue would be schedule and work time. Some people need to be available during specified hours, while others may have greater fl uh, flexibility. A programmer writing code likely could have greater schedule flexibility than someone staffing a call center. Uh, response time requirements are important. It's kind of, it's really related to your schedule, but your IT technical support staff need to respond to requests quickly or you'll have a lot of downtime and lost capacity. And of course, that becomes even more critical in a telework environment than in a normal work environment. Productivity, how productivity, and I think I would add effectiveness, will be measured. Some positions are harder or easier than others to measure work outcomes. And I think the consensus is that if you can measure outcomes rather than just output or transactions, it is better for you. Another issue is equipment. What equipment the agency will provide and what will the employee provide for themselves? Related to equipment is tech support. How will you support those tech needs? Uh, remember, inadequate or failed technology equals downtime. I think that we discovered a lot of our tech issues weren't hardware or software. It was training people to use the technology. And of course, some people struggle to, to use technology. Safety and security is another issue. Things like ensuring the remote work site is a safe place to work 
and security of information. We wouldn't want employees working on confidential client information in Starbucks. And this touches on multiple things. First, workers' comp issues, which I think are not really resolved in this sort of work environment yet. Also, how do we ensure that the employee is not in a dangerous environment? And how do we secure information or documents? And we need some process to deal with ad hoc situations and exceptions. Some examples of this may be you have an employee who's living and working from another state whose worker comp rules apply. Does your insurance cover this? You have an employee who lives and works from a jurisdiction other than yours. Uh, this could be a city or a state income tax question. Uh, as always, I would strongly advise anyone considering a telework policy to consult with your risk advisor or your county or district council or your city attorney. There are potential tax issues, workplace safety and ergonomic issues, and information and cybersecurity considerations. Because many of you, including my agency, work closely with CIS, I ask them for their thoughts and advice. They do have a policy template or sample for telework. Their template covers the basics we've already mentioned, like eligibility, schedule, productivity, work standards, equipment, and security. The CIS policy template offers a lot in terms of process, things like how does an employee request telework, something of a checklist for that initial employee-supervisor conversation, and then things like consequences for failure to comply with the policy uh, requirements and rights to uh, authorize or deny telework. A couple key things CIS seems to stress are a reminder to carefully track any agency equipment brought home by employees and a recommendation to use VPN for its uh, cybersecurity value. And again, log me in or something like that is another option. They also have some great information on office ergonomics and office wellness, in addition to information for agencies related to cybersecurity, including the use of VPN, which I already mentioned. Things like conducting phishing exercises and conducting penetration tests to test the combination of your systems, but also your employees' awareness and preparedness to work remotely. I believe we have some of the CIS materials available on our website uh, for download, and I'm sure they'll, uh, they'll share their own materials if you contact them. Anything you'd like to add, Pierre? Uh, to this part, no, uh, uh, at this point. Uh, but I know you're, you're going to ask me further questions. So. I could go into far greater detail, and I'm happy to talk with anyone who calls or emails looking for more. Members of LGPS uh, would get an hour of uh, at no cost to them, and that would cover most details. Pierre, do you have any advice for our members if they start to see grievances or demands to bargain sprouting up from uh, the desire to continue? Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I think public employers in Oregon who have unionized workforces should expect uh, uh, demands to bargain from unions about this matter, particularly when they notify workers who have been teleworking to return to work. That's when you are most likely to trigger a demand to bargain from your union. And the first thing employers will want to know is, well, do I have to do it? Uh, there's good arguments on both sides, whether or not an employer is, is, uh, uh, has a, a, a duty to sit down and bargain uh, the issue. Um, and if you have a really good relationship with your, with your union, 
you know, it may be less important whether or not you have a legal duty to sit down or not. It may be in your in, in the employer's best interest to not concern yourself too deeply with process or legal rights, but to but to go ahead, have the conversation that the union wants to have. You may find, especially when if you have a historically good relationship with your union, that what they what they need, what they're the interests they need served are things that the employer can accommodate. I wouldn't want uh, employers to get too hung up on on legal rights, but uh, you know. But if you and if you have a grievance, of course, you want to immediately uh, give us a call. But even on a demand to bargain, I would want LGPS members to call me. I would want you to give me a call in advance of public you know, of of sending or posting your notice to employees to return to the office. You know, from telework. I'd want you to get some advice about that because um, you're going to want to have a long, as long a period of time for the unions to come to you as possible. They have 14 days to do it, but if they demand a bargain and you're inclined to, um, maybe grudgingly but still inclined to, you want there to be as long a period of time to do the bargaining and complete it uh, as possible before you really need to have the workers back in the office. And I, I know initially I, I, was, I was sort of taking a hard line that we shouldn't, because we have no obligation to bargain, we shouldn't bargain. But I, I think I, based on what I've heard from you and others, my view is softening and that even if there's an adversarial relationship, it doesn't hurt to sit down and listen to the listen to the concerns or the issues because in the end you you have no obligation to to do what they ask some good conventional advice is if there's a question whether or not a subject that the union demands to bargain is permissive or mandatory remember just because it might be permissive and you sit down to bargain it it doesn't mean you have to agree with the union's proposals on the subject if you uh, uh, you know, you may have some bar some advantages if you're bargaining in the midterm, according to the uh, uh, expedited bargaining statute, the midterm bargaining statute. That's that statute's written to favor employers, as long as they, you know, they can exhaust their duty to bargain in in 90 days. Um, uh, but so so don't get too hung up on the uh, don't 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 feel that you're at too much of a disadvantage if you might be uh, bargaining a, a permissive subject. You can still say no. Uh, to union proposals as long as you aren't bargaining in good faith. So in summary, uh, take the time to develop a new policy or revise your existing policy and certainly consider this before mandating that employees who have been allowed to telework come back in. Uh, a good policy might address at a minimum position eligibility, schedule and work time, response time requirements, productivity, equipment needs and requirements, tech support, safety and security, other considerations which may be important are workers' comp rules, tax rules for anyone living in a different jurisdiction from where they work, and BOLI. Any last words or summary? Um, I, I, at least as far as BOLI rules are concerned, um, you know, this is not a place the legislature has regulated a great deal in telework. It's not a place the Oregon legislature has 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 waded into, it might, but it hasn't so far, and as long as it hasn't, Boley isn't going to, because Boley's 
authority and jurisdiction extends its mandate, its legislative mandate goes only so far as the particular legis enforcing particular legislation that, that the uh, legislature and governor have passed. Yeah. I, I seem to recall that you, in a previous conversation that we had had, that you had talked about uh, as employers get ready to and start telling employees to come back in. So, for instance, for our Senior and Disability Services Division, the state has mandated when we need to be opened back up for the public uh, on site. Uh, and I think what the advice you had given me was that we should give them as much advance notice as we possibly can. And is that that's still your, your thinking? It is. I don't, I, I, if, if it's a represented workforce, um, that goes double or triple. Um, if it's an unrepresented, uh, if you don't have a union representing your your your, your line staff, um, I still would. I think it'd be you know, a, a good idea to give them no less than two weeks advance notice, and 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 hopefully three or, or, or a full month would be good, um, because what's what helps them prepare to do that helps the employer, and if you have to bargain it with a union. You, you may not need 90 days, hopefully you won't need 30 days, but you shouldn't just leave it to two weeks. That, you're putting yourself in a tight spot there. I would say to our listeners, don't hesitate to call us or email us with your questions. We'll be posting a sample or a template uh, telework policy on the LGPS members website. Some future podcasts uh, will include uh, equity and inclusion, uh, we'll talk about the LGPS website and, in particular, the members-only page. Uh, and Weingarten, Loudermill, and Garrity, which are employee due process rights and interview rights. The easiest way to contact LGPS is by sending an email to asklgps at lcog.org. If you'd like to learn a little more about LGPS and uh, what we may be able to do for you, you may want to take a look at our website, which is www.lcog.org forward slash LGPS. So thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again for future podcasts. Thank you, Howard. <laughs>